Well, of course, we're coming now to the end of the year. Tomorrow night, midnight, is the end of 2017. And Mr. Weston, we won't be moved by then. Sorry, we just can't do it. But the next year, we will do it. 2018, we'll get it done. But the end of the year is rapidly upon us. And if you uh, follow any of the news feeds, you will realize that they start to make lists of uh, the top stories of 2017, whether they're fake or otherwise. They still have their list of stories that have learned from Mr. Ames. And undoubtedly, Mr. Ames will talk about some of these uh, events of 2017. But it's rather interesting because as they wrap up 2017, there is one particular subject that becomes very relevant. One news feed or one magazine called it a year of consequences. And what are they talking about? Uh, they're talking a little bit about what Mr. Uh, uh, Smith was talking about in the first split sermon about sex. You look at the impact of sex upon this past year of 2017. The aspect of identity and identity genders and the, the, the great discussions about that. And then in the last two months, the world has exploded with the revelations of sexual harassment and exploitation charges. Politicians, news personnel, movie stars, and all sorts of other people have lost their jobs, their place, and their standing in this world because of these charges. As uh, this particular article said, powerful, really powerful white men are losing their jobs. And every section of society wants to be included in the hashtag MeToo campaign. Airline hostesses are the latest to join hotel workers, restaurant staff, and so forth. And so this is an interesting situation that has developed. I don't believe it's fake news. It's reality. It always has been reality. As a boy, my father told me about how Hollywood worked. And I didn't consider him. He had never visited Hollywood, but he was aware of the use of sex to gain power and position and so forth in terms of Hollywood. In our town where I grew up, it was well known that a particular owner of a haberdashery store considered any of his female staff fair game if they're in the basement at the same time he was. And I worked in an office where we had lots of accounting clerks and lots of typists. And I know the names the girls had for certain guys in the office because of their conduct. It's not a new thing. Feudal kings, bishops, and lords were well uh, adept at sexual harassment and using sex in terms of power and control over people to get what they wanted. And it's a lot older than that as well. 
In fact, the Bible provides a really compelling insight into these problems. One book alone recounts the numerous problems that have been splashed across headlines and uh, news channels over the past two months. I'm talking of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. If you start in chapter 9 of the book of Genesis with the indiscretions of Canaan towards his grandfather Noah, we find him, you might say, sexually abusing his grandfather. Chapter 9 and verse 18 onwards. We won't read that. You might make a note of it, though, and be aware of it. Clearly, it was part of the pre-flood world, the attitudes of a pre-flood world, that had survived the Noetian flood. It destroyed evil people, but it did not destroy the information that evil people had used. It's a world that had to be destroyed because of its sin. The problems that we find in chapter 9 continue right throughout the book of Genesis till we get to chapter 49, when Jacob reminds us in the first few verses of Reuben's indiscretion with Bilhah, his father's concubine and Rachel's handmaid. And so Jacob makes no bones about it when he talks in verses 1 through 4. He said, Jacob called the sons together and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, but, he says in verse 4, unstable as water, you will not excel. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up on my couch and took one of his father's concubines, as we find earlier in in. Uh, the, the book of Genesis. Oftentimes throughout the book of Genesis we find euphemistic te- uh, terminology being used instead of a gutter talk that is used today. But there are some exceptions. There is no euphemism in the way in which chapter 38 outlines the shortcomings of Judah and his desire to have prostitutes and uh, dalliance with prostitutes. Some people find it, oh, terrible, shouldn't read that. Glue those pages together. From the time of Noah to the end of the book, we're introduced to almost every form of wrong sexual activity, whether it be adultery, fornication, Incest, homosexuality, rape, prostitution, and sexual harassment. What else do you want to add? 
The book of Genesis tells us all about it. And the sad thing is that the people who are involved in this are not necessarily the Canaanites or the Egyptians, although they do have their part. But it's the offspring of the people that God is choosing or the people that the Eternal is choosing to work with in a remarkable way. And so the book of Genesis records an incredible amount of what we might call salacious material. And is it just done for the purpose of the the tablet uh, print of the newspapers, as they might do? Going back to England, we will be confronted by the sun and the Daily Mirror and all of their salacious stories that they like to present. Why, we won't really be presented with it because we won't subscribe to it and uh, I don't think I've ever bought one of those. But they're everywhere. You go into uh, restaurants, you go onto the Tube in London and someone's left a copy there around the place. And they love the salacious stories to... uh, uh, get readership and attract attention. So has the eternal provided these as just a salacious tale or is there a lesson to be learned? Well, we've already heard uh, from Mr. Smith today, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that all these things happen for our learning. And I think it's very important that we understand these things and we see the world from our Creator's viewpoint. Because, you see, as I mentioned, most of the people who are involved in these things, it was Noah's grandson that the book begins with in chapter 9. And it's Jacob's son, Reuben, at the end. And I know we get Potiphar's wife in there, and we get uh, the Prince of Shechem and various and sundry other people. But largely... It is the offspring of the people that God is working with. In other words, we can be influenced by this world around us. Our lives, our attitudes can be shaped by the world in which we live. And I would certainly encourage you to read uh, uh, Dr. Winnale's comments. I didn't know he was going to include this in uh, the... uh, update this week when he uh, when when I prepared the sermon but he talked about here he said another increasingly visible trend is a growing acceptance and active promotion of morally depraved behaviors sexual exploitation open homosexuality same-sex marriages and more the world has forgotten that God destroyed the pre-world flood, uh, destroyed the pre-flood world, excuse me, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of these wicked sins. An important lesson for us today is that Lot and his family became tolerant. They became tolerant of what was going on around them and were reluctant to leave that perverted society. Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back longingly at what she was leaving behind. And uh, so he mentions the point that Mr. Smith mentioned about uh, as we see our modern societies going the way of Sodom again, 
We need to remember these Old Testament examples and come out of a world in its ungodly ways. So uh, something for us to be very, very aware of. Genesis obviously outlines a world in the first instance cut off from its creator. Individuals were called, not great groups of people. We don't find Acts chapter 2 with the eternal adding to the church daily such as should be saved at this point in time. He's working with individuals and their families. And uh, we need to be aware of how they were affected by this world that lacked any form of godly righteousness. They had lessons to learn themselves. How were they affected? How did they respond? And you might say, by extension, how are we affected and how should we respond? The Bible is our Father's handbook, as we've so often said. What does the Bible tell us about our response in a case like this? I would like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. And we'll take an example in in Abram's life. We find Abram coming to um, Gerar in verse 1. And the local king of Gerar was Abimelech. And at this point, Abraham had a beautiful wife without any need for Photoshop. She was so good looking that every king that they ran into wanted her as part of his harem. And so Abraham in verse 2 said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerah, sent and took Sarah. So we have an adulterous situation right on our hands. Not the first time that Abram's been here. Because we find the same problem back in chapter 12. And so we find the eternal appearing to uh, Abimelech in a dream by night and said, look, indeed, you're a dead man. Wow, what a way to wake up. Being told you're a dead man. Because of a woman you've taken, for she is a man's wife. This is adultery. 101. But Abimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. A little fudging of the family relationships here. He said, in my, the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I've done this. And the eternal said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. And I've withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I will not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. You and all that you have, all who are yours. And so, what do you do when your life's on the line? Pretty woman or not? You get up early in the morning... And you sort the problem out. I don't think he slept much from the time the Eternal appeared to him in the dream. And uh, he called Abram and said to him, What have you done to us? 
How have I offended you? This is verse 9. But you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Abraham's response is most interesting. I'd like you to be aware of this. Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. And he goes on and explains, Yes, she is sort of my half-sister. And yes, we did sit down and work this out because we knew the consequences of saying, she is my wife. And I don't want to be a dead man. Okay? You have to ask, how much fear of the eternal did Abraham really have in understanding these things? Yes, he realized there was no fear of God in that place. But at this point in time, he still had to develop a real understanding of the fear of God himself. And so he imperiled the life of this individual, imperiled his own life, and that of Sarah at the same time. And of course, we go forward a couple of chapters to chapter 22, and we find the occasion in which, having sacrificed Isaac some 20 plus years later, the Eternal says, Now I know that you fear me, and that you have not withheld your only son. So Abraham understood this thing about the fear of God and understood how it worked in part, but he didn't really, at that point in time, have a hold on it himself. And so he was looking for, you might say, human options. How do we play this so that we both survive? I don't know how they survived as husband and wife, and how the Eternal could have provided his promises through Abraham when Sarah was in Abimelech's court. So there's a lack of right thinking going on in terms of Abraham. But I'd like you to contrast it with the account of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. Joseph was sold into Egypt, became highly successful in his master's house, and harassed by his master's wife. She wanted a toy boy, all of her own. So chapter 39, after that horrible chapter that no one wants to read of Judah and the prostitution, we find uh, Joseph being taken into Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of a guard, an Egyptian brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Eternal was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Eternal was with him, and the Eternal made him made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. He was made overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. Incredible. Just a meteoric rise in terms of his ability to serve and manage his master's household. And uh, interesting, if you drop down to verse, the end of verse 6, you find that verse 6 is sort of set out, or the end of verse 6, beginning of verse 7, 
is set out in a different way than the rest of the text. My Bible said, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He's a pretty good looking kid. Very good. He's not only capable, he's good looking. Obviously got some genes from his great grandmother, Sarah. Okay, runs in the family. And of course, it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. I can remember at university, I was given some tickets to the premiere of the film The Graduate. Potiphar's wife exists in this day and age. She wasn't a figment of Egyptian society. She exists today as well. And so uh, he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. My master has entrusted everything to me. He has committed all that he has in his hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Somewhere between chapter 20 and chapter 39, a lesson had been passed down to at least one member of a family. That sin can be involved. And of course, you know the rest of the story in which she then created a ruse against uh, Joseph. And when he refused her advances, he ended up in prison on false charges. That was the fake news, fake claim. And of course, that happens all the time. So it wasn't just for the fear of God that Abraham had talked about in chapter 20, but a realization on the part of Joseph that illicit sex is a sin against our father. In other words, it's more than me and you. There's a third party to this relationship, and it's called my heavenly father. And he said, if I do this, I sin against him. It's rather interesting because if we go back to Genesis chapter 20, where the Eternal is talking to Abimelech, where the Eternal appears to him in a dream, he said uh, in verse 6, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. You think you're being a proper man putting this woman into your hair to be purified, etc., etc., before you lie with her. But the Eternal said, I stopped you from touching her, because if you had touched her, you would have sinned against me. And he said, uh, I didn't let you touch her. Now therefore restore this man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you that you shall live. But if you don't restore her, that's it. Death. So we have all of these stories, all of these accounts of sexual licentiousness and misbehavior in the book of Genesis to help us understand something. 
that such sin is against God. It is against our Creator in a remarkable way. Consider how society today may change if such a penalty were understood. Now, it's rather interesting. I mentioned to you a magazine from which uh, this article came, the world, a year of consequences. I went to their website to try and find a little bit more about this New York magazine. And uh, I found on their website one of their latest articles is the best sex scenes in movies and television in 2017. So on the one hand, we're complaining about the way in which men conduct themselves in terms of sexual harassment and exploitation. On the other hand, we're glorifying it. What way do you want it? This world has lost its marbles in a remarkable way. Absolutely remarkable way. And so we have this occasion. It's interesting if we look at uh, what the Eternal says here uh, throughout the book of Genesis in terms of the sexual problems that people had. Because the Apostle Paul picks up on these thoughts in addressing the church in Corinth. One of the most sexually active cities in the world. Aberrant sexually cities in the world. Paul focused the minds of the church then and today on a fundamental point that is so easily lost. We see these conflicting headlines as I've just presented to you. If you look at the way in which the world looks at sex today, sex is about the person and about personal enjoyment and satisfaction. That's why we will advertise the best sex scenes because everyone was enjoying it. And maybe you can learn how to enjoy yourself in the process. But they forget the big lesson from the book of Genesis. Genesis doesn't permit that. Genesis speaks against self-indulgence, self-sexual indulgence, because our Creator is not involved. He has established what is right and wrong in terms of the hormones of the human body and the sex drives that derive from it. He created them. And he knows how they should be used rightly as opposed to wrongly. So we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We find the Apostle Paul addressing this particular subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Hey, it's not mine for a start off. It belongs to Christ. We are here because we are committed to a way of life. We want to be part of the kingdom of God. We want to share in his kingdom with all of the benefits it's going to provide for the creation. We realize the problems of this current world. And we have to realize that our bodies are not our own. They belong to Christ. 
He said, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? So we go back to Genesis 38 and the problem of Judah. He said, certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Now, of course, we all think, oh, yes, well, harlotry is selling. Uh, selling of sex, whether it's male or female. It involves the transfer of money. But our world is given to harlotry. You just got to look at the uh, the movies that Mr. Smith was talking about earlier on. And they were 12 years ago. And what else has come on the scene since then that could have been suggested? The world is given to harlotry in totality in many ways. He said, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He takes us right back to the very beginning, back to Genesis chapter 2, and tells us what the relationship between human beings is all about. That God, the Father in Jesus Christ, as the Word, as the Creator, established for human beings from the Garden of Eden. He said, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so in verse 18, a scripture every parent tries to convey to their child, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. We could look at the consequences of all of those events that are recorded in the book of Genesis. And they're not pretty. They're not wholesome. They're not godly. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't belong to yourself. We belong to Jesus Christ. So somebody else has to dictate how we conduct our lives. You know you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. How do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves in this world? How much of that do we want to take in ourselves? Hopefully none. Hopefully none. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul told not just the Corinthian church, but he told the Thessalonian church as well. First Thessalonians chapter 4 in the first four verses. He said, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. That's supposed to be the fruit of our lives being abounding in the things of God. Now, he doesn't explain all of that here, but he does in other places. He said, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your setting apart, your place within God's plan as a first fruit. 
that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Oh yes, sex has a right, right, rightful place in terms of marriage. And Paul goes on and talks about that, about how the marriage bed is undefiled. It's right and a proper place for it. God created something beautiful to bind a husband and wife together, to create them as one. And so he talks about this here in Thessalonians. Literally, you might say, expanding on what the Eternal has established there in Genesis, through Abraham on the one hand and uh, Joseph on the other hand. So what shapes our thinking and outlook as we see the moral decay of this world? The news media? And not everything it puts out there is fake. It's absolutely true. And there's a lot that's hidden that doesn't get out there. I know, I've lived my life, I've, you know, I'm no prude in terms of understanding how people conduct themselves in the world. Very much aware of it. Is it the news media that shapes our life, or the teaching that we've been given through the Word of God? His handbook for us. His handbook for our lives. How to have a successful relationship with someone of the other sex. How to have that proper relationship. Do we approach our spouse or our dates or others in the church in a way which reflects the fear of God? Interesting point for us to consider. As Abraham had to learn, as Joseph had been taught, they learned the right way eventually. Or do we operate by the unbridled license of Judah or the prince of Shechem or Reuben and so forth? Who is it we follow? If we learn the lesson of Abraham, then we can learn and appreciate what Paul speaks of to the Corinthians or to the Thessalonians. It's fascinating that Paul's first comments on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 are prefaced by this one statement. Ephesians chapter 5 and the end of verse 21. He said, submitting to one another in the fear of God. To have the fear of God requires that we understand who he is and what he says. And that directs our paths. And we could look at the Psalm 119 as Mr. Smith did earlier on. How do we shape our ways? Young men, young woman. How do we do it? By taking heed to his word. Developing within us a deep respect for the things of God, for the standards of God, for the ways of God, for the purposes of God, so that we truly can accomplish his goal. 